Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is the man who played left wing in the NHL over a 15 seasons. He had a total of 331 points in 774 games played during that span. He played for the Bruins, the Los Angeles Kings, New York Rangers, St. Louis Blues between 1963 and 1977. Some of our younger audience may know him as the father of professional wrestling great and musician Chris Jericho. For people my age, he'll always be remembered, though, as number 27 in a Rangers uniform. It is a pleasure to welcome Teddy Irvin to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Ted. Thanks very much for that introduction. Number 27 in your program, number one in your heart. Absolutely, for sure, especially for me and AJ, uh, longtime Ranger fans. You know, but you started your career with the St. Bonaventure uh, Canadians of the Major Junior Hockey League. 1962-63, you topped that league with 31 goals in 32 games. The competition was really strong back then. You played in front of a lot of fans. Your play gets you called up for five games in the Memorial Cup with the Brandon Wheat Kings. You know, and you're very young at that point. What was that experience like for you? Oh, you guys really know your stats. <laughs> Mark was, has a lot of time it, on his It was hands. unbelievable. I was signed by Boston to what they call a C form when I was 16 years old. And uh, in those days, the National Hockey League teams owned the junior teams. And so Boston owned two teams in Winnipeg. One was St. Boniface. And um, I had a pretty good year, and uh, that year the Brandon Wheat Kings won the Manitoba Championship, and they went out west to play the Memorial Cup against Edmonton. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be picked up and uh, played those five games uh, against Edmonton against the likes of Glenn Sather. <laughs> and, and people don't know this. Glenn, Sa- we had Sean Avery on last yeah. week. Glenn Sather in his playing days was the Sean Avery back then. He he was yeah, a guy he, that he could a, get under your skin guy. for yeah. sure. Uh, you mentioned the, about that C contract and, and that your property of the Boston Bruins. 1963-1964, you get called up for one game for the Boston Bruins. You're you're 19 at that point. You walk into a locker room with Eddie Westfall, Orland Curtinback, Teddy Green, and the coach Milt Schmidt. You, you know. I can't imagine what that's like walking into that locker room for your first game against the Toronto Maple Leafs as a 19-year-old. Do you remember that day? I'll never forget as long as I live because I was uh, Saturday afternoon in Winnipeg at the old Lyceum Theater watching The Great Escape with Steve McQueen, and my dad walked into the audience and said, come with me, get a haircut, and you're flying to play for the Boston Bruins. I've never flown. I've never been out of Manitoba. Uh, so I remember going and meeting the Boston Bruins in, in the Toronto airport, flying on a private airplane with a steak as your meal, got to Boston, and Milt Schmidt gave me a $100 bill, and my dad told me, if anybody gives you any money, put it in your shoe in case you get robbed. <laughs> I remember playing the next day in against Toronto Maple Leafs, and my first shift, a player hit me and got a two-minute penalty. It was Eddie Shack, and it was for Neen. He jumped me and kneed me in the chest. And uh, I remember sitting down on the bench with the Boston Bruins and Leo Boyd and said, welcome to the NHL, kid. Keep your head up. I'll never forget as long as I live. 
from that game, you went back and, and played three seasons of minor league uh, pro seasoning with the Minneapolis Bruins, Oakland City Blazers, because the, the Minneapolis yeah. franchise moved, of the CHL. Some of your minor league teammates included Harry Sinden, Terry Crisp, Derek Sanderson, Glenn Sather, Bill Goldsworthy. Uh, this goaltending trio is unbelievable for a minor league team. Bernie Perrant, Jerry Cheevers, and Cesar Maniago. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that team actually might have beaten the parent club in an exhibition game. Um, how much confidence did you gain being one of the leading scorers on such a talented, good team? Boy, you guys are good. Yeah, we were, in those days, that was a six-team league. It was so difficult to break into the NHL. In Oklahoma City, we won the championship two years in a row. And as you referred to, we had Cheevers, Perrant, and Dougie Favell. And we did go in the Boston Garden, and we beat the Bruins right in Boston. And the fans were yelling, <laughs> you know, stay Oklahoma City, go home Boston. It was quite an experience because wow. our goaltender at that time was Doug Favell, and he beat up their tough guy, Reggie Fleming. So, But we still, to I room with Joey Watson at that time, to try to get up to the Big Apple was so, so difficult. So playing them and winning the championship, but then – not being able to get an opportunity to play in the NHL was frustrating also, but we had great teams in Oklahoma City. You know, June 6, 1967, you're claimed by the Los Angeles Kings in the expansion draft. I have to imagine being part of the Bruins family for, for such a long time and, and growing in that organization that it's got to be a little bit of a shock. And you also mentioned that you know the first time you were on a plane was that time to Boston. What's the first thing that goes through your mind when you hear L.A.? Well, at that time we, you know, the, I was in Winnipeg, Manitoba. At that time, when the when the draft came up here, you, you you sat and you watched and listened to see if your name was to be called. So when we did get picked to go to Los Angeles, which was the first year of expansion, in 1967, we really didn't know what it was going to be like, because eh? really we'd never been in an NHL surroundings, uh, a training camp, and everything else. So. It was very, very scary, and at that time, Los Angeles King was owned by a man named uh, Jack Cook, and he'd bought the rights of the Springfield Indians, which is your old Eddie Shore, and about 80 guys showed up at our training camp, and uh, so you really didn't know if anybody's even watching. Our number one pick was uh, Terry Sawchuck, so to go to camp, and we were there almost, I'd say, almost four weeks, and uh, we had no money, we had... <laughs> They give us tickets to eat food, and the restaurant was out of town, so you hardly ate. And you know, we you know we didn't know what it was like to be in the NHL until we got to Los Angeles. Then we started to get the feeling, hey, we're in the National Hockey League. What was it like that year? The expansion, not gonna, the current expansion, when one team right. was added to the league. Six teams were at. They put a whole new division in, doubled the size of the league. What was it like to see so many of the players who you played with, who tried for so many years to make it into the NHL, to finally make it? Well, it was exciting because, like you say, the the six expansion teams, you know, you knew most of the guys, and so if you went to Philadelphia, you knew guys. St. Louis, you knew guys. Oakland, Minneapolis, you knew the guys. Some of them were your teammates, and uh, some of the guys you played so many years in the Central League, so you knew that style of hockey and. The way they had set up that time, there was going to be the six expansion teams against the six original six. Where the fun came was when you went into an original six building, Chicago and Montreal and Toronto, and, and then you skate around the ice, and now you look, and there's the guys that you've been following in your career as a kid, and you're skating on the same ice. I remember going to Montreal, and there was Jean Beliveau, the 
oh, the biggest, classiest guy I've ever seen at that time in Cornwallier. And I'm skating around the ice with them. I'm going, you got to be kidding me here. In fact, the first game we played against, and we were down 5 nothing in the first period, Cornwallier got four goals. Bellable had the puck, and we used to chase him all over the ice. And Terry Sawchuk said, I know you guys admire Bellable, but would somebody stay in front of the net with Cornwallier and check him? But it was going to Boston. There's Bobby or Chicago and Bobby Hall, and it was just... Yeah, it was just your dream came true. All the things you dreamed as a kid. You played against an original six team in an original six building. That was that's your dream. Now you mentioned going into the Boston Garden, and if I'm not mistaken, that one game where you got called up to play, and then you went back down to the minors for three years. That one game cost you the the chance to, if I'm not mistaken, you were slated to go down to play juniors with Bobby Orr. Am I correct? Where did you guys get this stuff? You're so darn right. Yeah, I was. I'd signed with Boston, and uh, they wanted to send me to Oshawa to play with Bobby Orr. And the owner of the Winnipeg team here wouldn't let me go because he bought me contact lenses that year and a new <laughs> pair of skates. They said we want him to stay one more year for Winnipeg, and that's the year I got called up for the play in Minneapolis for the uh, the. Uh, old six-team league, and uh, uh, next year I made it into pro, so I never got a chance to play with the great Bobby Orr. Imagine that. Wow. Being, playing with him at that age would have been I unbelievable. No, I couldn't. So you mentioned uh, you went to training camp. There were about four weeks, 80 players. Were there any guys towards the end that you were worried about, maybe friends that you'd made through training camp that didn't make the team, or did you usually keep with you know the starters, the guys that were going to make the team? Well, at that time, we re- even the 20 guys were picked as starters. We really did, I didn't know one guy in that team that I'd played with before. Eh? Oh, wow. uh, so they were from all different directions. You had Brian Kilray. The, they had a lot of Springfield guys. They were, we had five or six Springfield guys were there. Then the other guys were from you know, Detroit franchise and a Chicago franchise. So we didn't become a team until we got to L.A. And then we started to get to know each other and uh, living and traveling together and everything else. And because we're in Los Angeles, uh, our meal money check was more than we were making in our regular contract. So on the roads, we hung together all the time and played cards and cribbage and drank beer. We became a very close team. So when we, they picked a team, we really didn't know each other. You know, Red Kelly was our coach. We didn't know him. We knew of him. So it took us a while to get to know each other. We were lucky. We had a great bunch of guys. In fact, I was just in L.A. in November for the 50th anniversary, and it was like you know, it took 15 minutes or right back to where we were when we were kids in 1967. So we didn't really know each other when we left camp. It's interesting because I remember in the very early days of cable TV and, and staying up late to watch the Ranger King games, it was always you know live from Jack Kent Cook's fabulous you know Los Angeles Forum and, and the the purple the just the the, the way yeah. the purple hit you is one of my earliest memories of cable TV. Uh, that rookie season, forty points, really good season. You become a New York Ranger, however, when the Mill Francis was looking for toughness. Reg Fleming had been traded. Jimmy Nielsen and Brad Park, two of the toughest guys on the the roster at that point were injured. Riel Lemieux was not the replacement for Fleming that Emil thought he was getting when he got him from L.A. So he trades him back to L.A. with Yuha Whiting for um, you. And the story goes that the reason why Emil wanted you so much is first he had seen you early on in your career in the minors, but he also saw you take on Bob Plager and Noel Picard at the same time in one game. Do you remember that particular instance where you're taking, uh, you know, Bob Plager is one of the toughest guys, and then on top of it, Noel Picard's no slouch either. I still got the knuckle marks on my forehead from Noel Picard. <laughs> I heard that story after because it had started in Los Angeles. I got in a fight with Noel Picard at center ice. 
and I stepped on the stick, and I started to go down, and he just hit me in the head and just flattened me. And he told his teammates after, he said, I think I killed him. <laughs> we went back into St. Louis the next couple of nights, and Bobby Plager came after me. And, yeah, Bobby was a nutcase. I'd played against him when I was in Minneapolis in the Central League, and he was a wild man, good guy now, but at that time he was a wild, <laughs> wild man. He came after me, and I was lucky. I was able to get his sweater over his head. I was holding his head down, and he was trying to headbutt me in the chin. And Noel Bacard was circling. Nobody would help, and he was trying to punch me. So I had Bobby with his sweater over his head hold him down and ducking punches to Noel Bacard, and the meal was at the game. So when I got traded in New York, he said, I traded you for that game. I was hoping you don't let me do that again. Because <laughs> <laughs> Noel was one of the biggest men you ever yeah. met in your life and mean and everything else. So uh, I was thankful Emil was at that game, and uh, I was able to perform for him. You know, you played nearly six years in Manhattan. 1970-71, you formed one of the best two-way lines in the NHL with Pete Stemkowski. We just had George Grimm talking about his great new book, We Did Everything But Win the Emil Francis Era. We mentioned the Stemkowski overtime goal. You got an assist on that goal. What was it like to be on the ice for what, for years until the Mateau goal, was probably one of the most famous goals in Ranger history at the Garden as well? Do you remember the feeling on the ice when that goal, the, the red light went on? I remember it uh, vividly because uh, the puck went in the corner and I went in through it up front and Stemmer put it in. The pitcher that was outside the Ranger dressing room when you went on the ice was still hanging over the last number of years even of all of us jumping there and hugging. It was Dale Rolfe and Stemmer and myself. My son, as you say, Chris Jericho, I used to go watch him wrestle in Madison Square Gardens, and he'd show the guys, here's my dad, part of the most famous gold New York Ranger overtime history. And they said, well, where's your dad? He said, well, you can't see him, but look at his skate. You see number 27. <laughs> <laughs> That's not your dad. So I remember it vividly. And uh, to win in New York, uh, it's even become more important the older you get because the Ranger fans have been so loyal to us and to me, and uh, I'll never forget it. And at that time, you don't realize it's three overtimes. And somebody told me they were using it as the, one of the highlights of the 50-year career. I said, you got to be kidding me. And so I just was down in New York for the Ranger tournament, saw Stemmer there, and we were laughing about the goal. Eh? And uh, he gets all the credit, but I did all the work, and <laughs> nobody cares. It's number you know, 18, you, actually, you, on the list of top yeah. 50 moments in Madison Square you know, Garden. You go out and you do a Google search on you. And I did that this afternoon. And up comes a video of a fight with you and Dave Schultz. And did you have a particular, you talked about, you know, tough guys, and you talked uh, about uh, Bob Plager and Noel Picard. What was it like playing against Dave Schultz and playing against that flyer team of the Broad Street Bullies? Well, the first exhibition game was Schultz's brought up. His exhibition game was in Madison Square Garden. A scrum broke out in front of our net, and he grabbed me, and he said, I'm up from the minors, Irvin, I'm going to make a reputation. I'm starting with you. <laughs> so I just started crying. I said, well, grab Stemmer. But, and I never thought anything of it. Then over the years, Broad Street Bullies, to play in the Spectrum in Philadelphia was one of the thrills of your life, if you want to call it that, because you drive in with the bus. The fans are rocking your bus. To go out in the ice, there was no overhang when you came out of your dressing, so they poured beer on you and popcorn. And then when you skate out in the ice, and there was a lot of tough guys in that club. And they were there, you know, with uh, Zaleski 
and Kelly and Moose DuPont and Schultz, uh, was there and everyone else in warm up. They came yeah, across this, the, the yeah. red line trying to bump into you and everyone else. You knew you were in trouble through that whole game. So I was lucky playing with Stemmer because uh, Stemmer was one of the original disturbers on the ice. He loved to yap. And I remember we'd go in the face-off with Clarkie, and they'd put Clarkie and Schultz and Zaleski together. And Stemmer would just say, Clarkie, I'm coming after you tonight, and we're going to come after you. This is in the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Clarkie would just back up. He'd say, okay, boys, where you go? And Schultz and Zaleski would step in right away. Eh? So you had to be on a line or have guys in the ice you knew that would back you up because there was a thing in those days called road flu. Some guys went on the road. <laughs> they were they didn't perform the same as they were at her at home. And and the other the home team always played tougher too. So to play against those guys you didn't know where they were coming from. And Cheryl Freddie Cheryl's theory was we're gonna beat him in the alley. And that's how he changed hockey in the early seventies. So it was a real experience playing against Philadelphia because they all became tougher, and they would drop the gloves so quick, and you had to be ready for them at any point in time. When you were here in New York, you were noted to do the Irvin Shuffle cele- uh, celebration dance after your goals. Uh, you were extremely popular off the ice here, too. In 1974, you received the Hockey Writers Players Player Award. A year later, you're honored with the New York Ranger Team Award for Charitable Work, the Conacher Award. If you look back at those Ranger rosters and you look all of those names, and there's lots of legendary names on that those rosters, those two awards, how important are they now, you know, reflecting back on your career, that you won them looking at those rosters? Well, you raise a good, great point. Uh, that 71-72 team special, we are still to this day very, very close. We Spent some this summer with Walt Kachuk down at his golf course. About 13 of us went down there, and they were down for the Johnny Rattel, uh, the golf term with the Rangers, and they brought the gag line in. That team was so close, eh, and still to this day. So when I look back, I know when I was down in September, Roger Bear stood up and talked, and he, everybody was at the table. He mentioned something about him, and he mentioned, you know, Teddy, when you came in, you did this, Teddy, and we did this. And, and I sat and listened because you – you're playing with your idols. You're playing with guys you got so much respect for. I mean, I'm skating around with guys got you know the gag line. I mean, you're Eddie Jacobins and the Villiers and Brad Park, and these are guys you idolize. And for them to say something nice about you is very nice. But then to be honored at the end of the year as a player's player, where the guys voted, that was to me. As I look back now, I said, "Wow, what an honor that is for all the special guys who are on that team to think highly enough that I did something." For that team, you know that I, that, you know that they respected me enough. I'll tell you a quick story. Emil Francis, that one year, the next year, I'd got so many goals, and I was voted this and that, and I had another year left of my contract at nineteen thousand dollars. And I went to see Emil at training camp. I said, Emil, I think I did very good last year. The guys really liked me, and I got this award, that award, and and he said, that's, that's nice, Teddy, but you got another year in your contract for nineteen thousand. I said, yeah, I know, but the guys are making more, and I, I really think he he said, what do you do? If you don't play hockey, so I could work for an investment company up here in Manitoba. And he reached across the table, shook my hand. He said, "Well, good luck to you there, good company." <laughs> I went, "Oh no!" And they looked. He said, "No, we really like you, and we do believe that you helped us out. What do you think you're worth?" And I said, "Ah, I think I'm worth 25 grand." He said, "Well, we think you're worth 27.5." Wow. Walked out, and I said, "I think I did something wrong there. I think I was supposed to ask for 30, and he was going to count for 27.5." <laughs> wow! But the respect of winning that award, then to win the the one that was a media award, and Dennis Potvin won it for the island. That was special because I think we were at uh, 
Luke Childs or some one of the restaurants, and to sit there with the media and everything else. And I got some wonderful letters when I left the Rangers when I quit Huey Delano and other guys, and just saying nice things about you know just the respect I had for them, and they respected me. You know, Stan Fisher didn't ever like me; he wasn't allowed to address him, <laughs> and he said I was a mediocre hockey player and never reached mediocrity. So, <laughs> wow, not man. not everybody loved me. So. No, you know, to this day, when I walk in, I'm still a fan of those guys, and I'm treated with respect, and I was part of it, and uh, uh, you can never take that away from me. I'm going to have to call Stan on that when I see him at Madison Square Garden. Uh, lastly, we mentioned in the open who your son is. Growing up, did Chris play any hockey, and do you think if he stuck with it, he could have been an NHL player? Uh, he played hockey. And in fairness to him, in those days, we couldn't stay in the States after our green card was up, eh? So Chris moved back and forth. So, you know, he, you know, he, he was in New York and in St. Louis, moved back to Winnipeg, and we'd have to go back. So he played hockey, but he, it wasn't his sport. He was uh, smallish at the time, and I think it was one of those father-son things, I'm really not interested in what you're doing type thing. He played some high school hockey, and he was small. Chris is not a big man. And uh, uh, he loved the game, but it just wasn't his game. Uh, now, he plays lots of charity games now, and he absolutely loves it. He's a fool out there. He likes to <laughs> wrestle with everybody, and he's got the, the special dance. And he loves hockey. He's a huge fan of the game, but he just didn't have the speed or the technical of any sport, to tell you the truth. But wrestling became his love because of his imagination and his strength. Uh, so hockey, he loves it now, but that time, no, he wasn't going to make it, nor was he interested in making it. It's interesting because every Father's Day, these lists come out of, of the best father-son sports combination, and I always get mad that you and Chris are left off of those. So I'm throwing this out there all right, as an open invitation. As we get closer to Father's Day, I'd like to have both you and Chris on together on our show because uh, – you guys are number one on my list. I mean, there's no question about it. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. We'd love to do something like that. We have a lot of fun. He has his own shows, Talk is Jericho, and I do a lot of old-time hockey stuff with him and some of the other wrestlers and that. And uh, he's a Chris is, is a huge fan of hockey, absolutely huge, just loves the game. And uh, he, he sends me more stuff on history, and he finds more YouTube stuff and uh, highlights of goals and everything else. Like, Where do you find this stuff? And fans are good enough to send it to him. No, he'd love to do it. No, he, like I say, he, he didn't like the garden because it was too loud. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to it, Ted. So we want to really thank you so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for many many games. I, I mean, you when the three of you guys were traded because I always loved the tough guys and when you and, and Wilson and Butler all three went. But you know, I'm I'm gonna put it this way and don't take it wrong. You know, without you guys leaving, there is no 79. And for a long time, 79 was the highlight of my you know, sports fandom when they beat the Islanders. And it never happens without J.D. So there was a little silver lining. But uh, certainly I remember the day that trade was made. And I said, oh, you guys, you got to be kidding me. But uh, thank you so much for your time tonight and for many wonderful days at Madison Square Garden. We really appreciate it. Well, guys, thanks for doing your homework. You brought back okay. a lot of good memories, and I can't tell you enough that New York and the Rangers and the fans and the media is the greatest place I ever played. It has a special plate in my heart, and I was so, so lucky to play there, and I, I really consider this an honor. You guys still remember. Hopefully they'll bring you back uh, the day they uh, honor John Rattel by raising his jersey thereafter. Maybe I'll see you there at the Garden. Okay, thanks a lot, guys, for your you time. You got it. Number 27 in your Rangers program, number one in your Rangers hearts, Teddy Irvin.